Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Hey, Spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I'm joined by my cool friend, Jessica. Merry Christmas! <laughs> Happy holidays! It is Christmas week, holiday week, whatever you want to call it. It's true. It is. We're here, and you probably are. will be hearing jingle bells because we're wearing ugly, ugly Christmas sweaters or Christmas sweaters right now. Jessica's isn't ugly. Mine. I think mine's fabulous. Jessica, you want to tell them what you're wearing? It's the holiday armadillo sweater from Friends. I'm so excited. Fun story is Tara and I decided because we should be announcing on um, social media as the winner of the ugly sweater contest. Tara and I were like, let's wear ugly Christmas sweaters. I'm like, sweet. I'll just go pick one up. But ran out of time and went to Target. And it's too late in the season to get an actually cute one from Target. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm actually fine because I particularly love this episode of Friends, so it warms my heart. That's amazing. It is. I am wearing one that I found tonight. It's got skulls. It's got, they got elf hats. It's got lights and bells. (laughs) Her thing does all of it. All the things. But... Yeah, we're going to get started. We are diving on deep, I'm sure, as you've seen on the title, and because I'm not doing no witty titles. It's just going to be what it is. I'm only laughing because I thought of a witty one, which was, um, it's all Mick- it's all Phil Mickelson's fault, but that's, a- <laughs> that's neither here nor there. <laughs> we are diving into the Lacey Peterson case tonight, and... This is also going to be our legit first two-part episode. I know we broke up the Manson family, but this one we have pre-planned to break up on purpose. It's true. We have never actually pre-planned to have two episodes of one topic. Mm -mm. And uh, we're going to cause suspense because in between the two episodes of this topic is going to be a listener's episode. So... Yes, all the suspense, all the excitement. So excited. You're welcome. Yeah. But as usual, as usual, Jessica, you want to tell the tell the spooksters what y'all drinking? Tonight, I am drinking because I could not think of an appropriate drink. I thought about doing something holiday-y, but we've done that before. So we're just drinking White Claw tonight. I got the black cherry because the guy who brought my Instacart didn't bring me the variety pack like I asked for. He brought me the black cherry. <laughs> so you got what you got. I got what I got. And I got a few cans because like I said, we it's going to be a two-parter. Yes, yeah, it's going to be a long night and we're recording both episodes in one sitting. So here we go. But I've got 
two drinks. So first shout out to Jessica V. She sent a 12 pack of the fucking Cranberry Canada Dry to our P.O. box. Hooray, hooray. So I've got that. I'm so fucking excited. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Which makes me feel like I'm saying thank you to you. But, you know, Jessica V. Right. It also makes me feel like I'm like, I started this whole thing that I was going to send it to you and then I never did. So I'm the failure. And Jessica (laughs) is the better, obviously, is the better Jessica here. So. (laughs) (laughs) But I got that. And of course, because I have to have multiple. I also have a white claw. I have a raspberry because that was the last one in my multi-pack that I hadn't tried yet. So that's what I get. I also have hot chocolate because it's holiday-y. And then I have water because, you know. We're recording, so you got to keep your larynx moist. Yes, yes. But uh, if you are new here, hello and welcome. We're a little hyped because we had some behind-the-scenes stuff going on. and uh, Also, Jessica's very excited about our topic because she asked yes. Tara to do it months ago, and <laughs> Tara said no at first. And then after she watched the documentary I, I asked her to watch, she said yes. <laughs> <laughs> So we are here. We are here. But yes, um, if you would like to hang out with us on social media, we are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of that great stuff. You can head to the show notes and click the link tree. Our handle is at Three Spooked Girls, and we have an amazing Facebook group as well you can find. We have a Patreon if you would like to support the show. We are an indie podcast, and we anything you guys send over to us, we put back in the show for post-production, giveaways, all of that great stuff. You get bonus content and Five and Up patrons will actually get part two early. They will not have to wait the two weeks for the other half. But dollar and up, you get bonus episodes that's exclusive to you each month. And other tiers get stickers, swag, and all kinds of cool stuff. So definitely check that out. Mm-hmm. But we are going to take our quick promo break. So hang tight and we'll be back in just a second. Hi, I'm Linda. And I'm Jane. And we have a brand new podcast called Bedknobs and Broom Flicks, where we talk about witches of the entertainment world. From the horror movies Warlock, Suspiria, The Witch, and The Blair Witch Project. To the more comedic or whimsical, such as Harry Potter, Hocus Pocus, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and The Blair Witch Project. No movie, TV show, or book is off limits. All witches, man witches, sorry warlocks, we're not calling you that, witches brews, witches of history, familiars, and witch-like activity will be discussed as we laugh and have fun talking about the wonderful world of witches. So join us every other week for some fun witchy talk. All witches welcome. Do you have a spooky business and need a logo or someone to help you with branding? Then you need to check out Mackenzie Lemoyne Designs, home for the soft and spooky. From logos to custom commissions to enamel pins, McKinsey will take any spooky idea you have and turn it into a reality. Head over to the show notes and check out her Etsy shop. She's also given an exclusive code just for you guys. At checkout, use the code SPOOKSTER for a 10% off your order. Again, check out McKenzie Lemoyne Designs for all your spoopy needs. All right. Well, welcome back, guys. We hope you enjoyed those. We're going to be talking about the Lacey Peterson murder today. In part one, we are going to be talking about some background and the alleged or maybe not alleged timeline and some other stuff for you. And then you'll have to wait a little bit for some part two with some controversial stuffs that we got for you, but super excited. So I am going to kick us off here with some background on Lacey, and then I will hand it over to my lovely ghoul friend for some info on Scott for you. 
So Lacey Denise Rocha was born on March 4th, 1975 to Sharon and Dennis Rocha, who were high school sweethearts. The Rochas lived near Escalon, California, where Dennis owned a dairy farm. They also had a son who was Lacey's older brother. His name was Brent, and he was born on January 26th of 1971. The couple would divorce shortly after Lacey was born. She was just about one years old, and Sharon would move herself and the two kids back to Modesto, California. And just a year after that, Sharon would meet the man who would become the kid's stepfather, Ron Gransky, through a mutual friend. Dennis would go on to remarry as well, and he would gain a stepson named Nathan and then have another child with his second wife, and their daughter's name is Amy. So Brent and Lacey, they would keep a good relationship with their father by visiting him at the farm over on the weekends. When visiting, Lacey would help out and work, you know, with farm chores and outdoors and things like that with her father. Along with this, she also liked helping her mother out in the garden in her home in Modesto, and this would help begin her love for horticulture at an early age. And if you've seen, I'm sure, unless, I don't know, you live under a rock, Lacey was beautiful. And just from looking at her pictures, you can tell she was very bubbly. She was very outgoing. She was a really happy person. She had a beautiful smile, like so, so big. Like she was gorgeous. So during junior high and high school, like I said, she was very social and outgoing, had a lot of friends, things like that. And she was also a member of the cheerleading squad. After graduation from Thomas Downey High School, she went on to attend California Polytech State University, or Cal Poly. And at Cal Poly, she majored in ornamental horticulture, which I looked up because I had no idea really what that meant. It is the study of growing, arranging, and tending decorative plants and flowers. Jobs you could have with that would be a florist, maybe a landscape designer, an interior designer was another idea, and that was something she actually was really good at, or a horticultural specialist, which is essentially people who identify and treat sick plants, trees, and shrubbery. So a vet for plants basically is what my brain concluded. I like that you went vet and not doctor. I mean, you know, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I just thought it was funny. You were like, a vet for plants. I was like, or a doctor. For plants. Yes. So that's kind of a little background on Lacey. I'm going to hand it over to Jessica to give us a little bit of the early life of Scott before we get any further into their story. Okay. So Scott Lee Peterson was born October 24th, 1972 in San Diego County to Lee Arthur Peterson and Jacqueline Jackie Helen Lamth. He had six half-siblings. Each of his parents had kids from previous marriages, but he only lived with one half-brother in a small two-bedroom apartment with his parents. So the Petersons aren't what you would call, like, affluent. His mom owned a little, like, boutique, but Scott decided early on that he liked the game of golf and actually became one of the top-ranked golfers at his high school and in his area which led to a scholarship to go to Arizona State University, which at that particular time, Phil Mickelson was also competing at Arizona State University. And Scott's father would later say that the reason he didn't continue to pursue his golf career is that Phil Mickelson made the competition unpleasing to him. 
they didn't like go into detail, but from what it sounded like is it probably just wasn't something like he was enjoying competitively. But I mean, he had a scholarship to go to a school, so he was sticking it out until he got drunk at a party one night with one of the his fellow golfers, Chris Coach. And Chris Coach was like one of the top ranked collegiate golfers at the time. And so Chris's dad called the coach of that school and said, look, Scott Peterson is going to take my kid down a bad path because he took him to a party, which I'm sorry, every college kid goes to a party. And it's kind of fucked up that you're like, my kid's career is more important than him having one night because essentially he showed up like hungover to a practice and the coach got mad. Whoop de do. <laughs> right. Like, let's let's literally think about this here. It's not it's not that bad. Mm hmm. So because of that, he eventually transferred to another school in the San Luis Obispo area and eventually transferred completely over to Cal Poly Slow. For those of you not from California, there are two Cal Polys. There's Cal Poly Slow and Cal Poly Long Beach, and they have a fierce rivalry. And the Cal Poly Long Beach people say they would never go to Slow. Or they got into Long Beach because they're not slow. I mean, they're kind of vicious. Yeah. During this time, Scott ended up working at a restaurant where Tara is going to tell us a little bit about his job. Yes. So we are going to now be in 1994. So this would be the year that Lacey and Scott would meet at this mysterious restaurant. The restaurant was called Pacific Bay. Scott was working there. He was waiting tables, things like that. He worked a few jobs so he could pay for school and things like that. And Lacey had a friend who worked at the restaurant as well. So, of course, she went over there plenty of times to visit said friend and noticed Scott one day. Well, Lacey was a go-getter and went after what she wanted. So she gave her number to her friend and she told them to give to Scott. Scott had thought that it was some kind of joke because he thought Lacey was way out of his league and that they were just messing with him. So he threw it away. And of course, days will go by and Lacey hears nothing because he threw it away. He didn't keep it. He didn't think it was real. So she decided to come back and see what the hell his deal was. She went up to him directly and asked why hadn't he called. So they got to talking and he explained the situation, things like that. And the two ended up starting talking more once they realized the mutual interest. After this, they set up their first date. It had been his idea to take Lacey deep sea fishing. And this was something that Scott was interested in. He went fishing a lot when he was a kid. But honestly, it was probably something to try to impress her because, you know, deep sea fishing as a first date, that's kind of... That's a big deal, too, because it's not cheap if, like, you don't have a boat. Right. I was going to say it's like highbrow kind of outing, you know? Mm -hmm. It's way more highbrow versus just, you know, the basic dinner and a movie. Yeah, which is like standard first date. Right. But also, that's a good way to kind of get to know somebody. But hey, you know, whatever. True. But Lacey was impressed with Scott so much that she called her mom even before they went on their first date and told Sharon that she met the man she was going to marry. And there's a Hulu documentary, the one Jessica referenced earlier, that kind of changed the the fate of this episode coming out. <laughs> and Sharon, kind, I think she kind of 
it seems like she kind of laughs or just seems like, what the hell? When she's talking about it, like her initial reaction is like, what the hell? Because she's like, well, did you guys even go on a date yet? And Lacey's like, well, no, we got it set up, you know, that kind of thing. And she's like, well, maybe you should go on your first date first (laughs) and see how it goes. You know, like as a mom, like, hello. I mean, as a person, any person, you're like, yeah, go on your first date. Let's see how it goes and go from there. (laughs) Like, calm down. Right. But they would go on their first date and I wouldn't say it necessarily went too great because she got seasick. So I can't really see that being too fun, but it didn't hinder their relationship at all. So after this, Sharon came to town to meet Lacey for lunch and probably to see what this future husband was all about. To see what the fuck, because her daughter was like Team Scott from day one. <laughs> yes. So the two of them went to Pacific Bay for lunch one day when Scott was working. And of course... Scott's a charmer, and he knew how important family was to Lacey, especially her mom, you know, just from that little story of her telling her mom that about Scott, you can tell they had a close relationship. So he knew he had to pull all the stops to impress Sharon or he wasn't getting the end. So he had a special table set up for the two of them, and he had a dozen roses for Lacey and also a dozen roses for Sharon. That's really sweet. That is sweet, but, uh, you know, it's, it's still Scott, so. Well, it's, we can acknowledge that he did something nice. True. He did something nice and he did something smart. It's true. It's one thing to see your daughter, your friend, you know, whoever, like anyone you care about. It's great to see them being treated well by somebody, but that extra step, mm-hmm. I will give credit to that. Yes, we'll give credit to that. Mm-hmm. So Lacey and Scott's relationship would continue, and in 97, Lacey graduated from Cal Poly, and she took a job in Prunedale. While Scott was finishing his senior year, he would graduate in 98 for his degree in ag business. Also that year, so in 97, on August 9th, the couple would get married at Sycamore Mineral Springs Resort in Avila Valley, which is also part of San Luis Obispo area. I just have to say, like, it breaks my heart seeing those pictures and stuff. She just, she looks so beautiful. She did. She just looked gorgeous. So, Mm -hmm. but anyway, it's also rumored that during his senior year, Scott's infidelity would start that he supposedly had two affairs, but in the media and stuff, their names were redacted and there wasn't much detail. So it's kind of one of those things that's, I don't know, what are you going to do? Like, as far as details go, like you can believe it, you cannot kind of thing. And I know in I can't remember what because I, I watched a bunch of stuff more than the Hulu things. Mm-hmm. One of them was saying that one of the girls he had a relationship with found out he was married at graduation. Oh, snap. Because Lacey was obviously there to watch him graduate. And she walked up and put a lay on him because, you know, that's like a thing for graduations. And he's like, oh, this is my wife, Lacey. It's like. Oh, really awkward. But anyway, apparently um, depends who you believe if Lacey knew about the affairs or not. But regardless, so post-graduation. So after this, the couple would go into business together. They had purchased and opened a restaurant called The Shack. Things were a little slow. They had renovations and all kinds of stuff like that to do, you know, basic open restaurant things. And it was said that Scott went all the way to San Diego to get a special certification so he could fix a certain vent or something like that so they could pass inspection because I think the situation was like it would be faster for him to go do get it and do it himself rather than try to wait 
for someone to come do it. Mm -hmm. And then while he did that, Lacey worked on all the interior design and making sure everything was all set up, you know, just right and was the look and the vibe and everything that they were going for. So eventually it would become a popular college hangout for like drinks and casual food. Uh, They had burgers and just like really casual kind of fun restaurant type of thing. But then in 2000, the couple would sell the shack and then it was time for a change. Mm -hmm. So at this point, Lacey had brought up that she wanted to start a family and they were starting to get a little bit older. So maybe it was time to grow up a little bit. The couple had been go, go, go with all the restaurant responsibilities and going out and spending time with their friends and going to parties and all that, which I mean, like they were in their early 20s. They had just graduated college. So like as they should, you know, go have fun. Mm -hmm. But Lacey wanted to move back to Modesto because that's where all of her family and close lifelong friends were. And that's where she wanted that support system for when she started her own family. So they would end up moving back to Modesto. The Petersons would purchase a three-bedroom, two-bath home for $177,000 over on Covina Avenue. And Lacey started to get the house settled into a home, get it unpacked, get it decorated, you know, get it all cozy and everything, like set up how they wanted. And then she also worked part-time as a substitute teacher. And Lacey's mom, I don't know if, I'm pretty sure it was in that documentary too. They kind of all muddled together at some points, but her mom described Lacey as essentially being destined or someone who like totally wanted or was like should be a housewife and mom, which I know it's like you might just be like, oh, oh my God, gross. The reason why she said it like that, she loved to host parties. She loved to have friends and family over. She loved to cook for others and she just loved taking care of people. So, She just fit into that role really well. And it wasn't like being forced into it. It was what she wanted to do that made her happy. And I'm all for everyone doing like whatever makes you happy, you know? Right. And also this was like the early 2000s. Like true. This wasn't a big deal. I think in small towns, a lot of times moms end up staying home more than in like bigger cities because, well, it's cheaper. Mm -hmm. And Scott and Lacey did live in like, the expensive part of town, like the affluent part of town, but I think it was very manageable. Yeah. And she was also described too as being super mature for her age and always knew exactly what she wanted and the family life and to be a mom and everything. That was what she wanted. So she was like, you know, checking her boxes basically. Mm -hmm. So Scott, on the other hand, he got a new job too. He would get a position with Trade Corp USA, which is a fertilizing company. He was hired as their West Coast rep, and he sold irrigation systems, fertilizer, chemical nutrients for soil, stuff like that, to big farms and clients like that. He would travel, like I said, the whole West Coast, so all through California, Arizona, and New Mexico. He had clients everywhere, so he was go, go, go. And Scott didn't want necessarily quite the same things as Lacey. He did seem to enjoy traveling and having the freedom to kind of do what he wanted. So a little precursor there with that. But then in 2002, we would have a big event happen. The Petersons would be expecting a son. They named him Connor. And it was said Lacey was so excited. She called her family at like six in the morning. So I'm assuming probably like right after she took the test. And uh, good old Scotty. He uh, he made a very Scott-like comment 
which I'm not surprised. He had joked with friends or a family member that he said, I was hoping for infertility and that he didn't really like babies and he felt awkward around them and he didn't like them. And he now felt like he was going through a midlife crisis. So he kind of had, it seems, the opposite reaction as too lazy. So that's fun. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I mean, I think some men have that reaction because having a kid means they have to grow up and put someone else ahead of them. I mean, some men never do. Some men have children and never grow up. So um, it's a weird, it's a very weird comment to say, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was going to say, I can understand everything else except that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Scott's just um, just kind of a dumbass on top of everything else. Like, that's clear. If you don't know, Scott's just kind of a dumbass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, ugh. Yeah. Anyway, and they, you know, time would go on and the pregnancy would go on and they set up Connor's nursery and it was this really cute, like, blue nautical theme. It was just, you know, just cute and adorable. And then now we are going to start to get into, I guess, the nitty gritty of things. So if you are unfamiliar, we're now going to go over Lacey's disappearance and her murder. As far as the timeline and what happened, really the accounts and everything we have to go off of is from Scott directly. So I'm going to kind of walk us through that. So we are going to fast forward to December 23rd in 2002. That night around 5.45 to about 8.30, Scott said Lacey and him, they went over to the hair salon where Lacey's sister Amy worked so Scott could get a haircut. Amy confirmed later that this would be true, that it wasn't something he made up, that Lacey was there and everything because early 2000s, she was trying to show her how to do that like hair flip thing, how all the girls wore their hair flipped out with a straightener. Oh. Uh-huh. And she was wanting to do that for, I think, like Christmas Eve dinner or Christmas. So she was asking her how to do it. And Scott had invited Amy over for pizza, but she had plans. So she was like, no, I'll just see you guys, you know, over the holiday. I'll catch you guys later. Mm-hmm. So then he's getting his haircut and they're talking and they were talking about this gift basket for their grandpa that she had to go pick up the next day. And she was kind of stressed about it because she had to work during the day. She had to work until about 2.30 or so. And it was from one of those, um, like the fruit stands kind of situation mm-hmm. called Vela Farms. And they closed at 3 on Christmas Eve. So she was like, hopefully I can get out on time. You know, the hopefully there's no traffic, et cetera, et cetera. And Scott's like, well, I'm going to go golfing in the morning. So let me just grab it for you and, you know, like make things easier. And so she said, okay, cool. And, you know, obviously that like really made her feel less stressed out. After the haircut, Scott and Lacey left the salon. They grabbed their pizza from Mountain Mike's and then they headed home. Once they got home, they ate their pizza and then they watched Monday Night Football. And then around 8.30, Lacey called her mom and they talked about the Christmas Eve dinner plans. And then once they got off the phone, they watched football and then they watched The Rookie. And this would be until about 10.30 at night. And then around that time, they would head up to bed and Lacey was wearing his blue pajama bottoms. And these weird little details, they, they'll come into play later too. So I'm mentioning things to plant them in your brains. Mm-hmm. And then the next morning, Christmas Eve, Scott 
estimates that Lacey got up about 7 o'clock. He said she got up, got dressed, put the pajama pants in the hamper, and then she went down to the kitchen so she could make herself some cereal because since she was so pregnant, she had to eat right away or else she would be sick. Lacey's mom later confirmed that, yeah, she would get up and eat and things like that. Scott said he got up and out of bed around like 8, maybe 8.30. Lacey had another piece of toast while he had some cereal. And then around 8.45 or so, uh, Scott got dressed and Lacey was talking to him about her plans for the day. She said she was going to go walk the dog and go to the store and make some gingerbread. She said she needed to go to the store because she was going to make a French toast bake for the next day for Christmas brunch. And basically, with the type of recipe she was going to use, it had to marinate, basically, in the, like, egg mixture. I've done something similar before, and it has to sit for, like, X amount of hours before you can bake it or whatever, just so it's, like, tastes delicious (laughs) kind of thing. And then it was on a recorded phone call with Lacey's mom that Scott described Lacey that morning. He said that Lacey looked so cute because she was sitting on her bench in front of the mirror styling her hair in the way that Amy showed her because she was so pregnant. Like you could only be on your feet so long because you'll, you know, you'll be tired and like your feet swell and things like that. So she had this little bench. So that way when she was getting ready doing her hair and makeup, she could just sit down and relax kind of thing. And now during this time also, Scott said he loaded three patio umbrellas from the backyard into the bed of his truck. He said he was going to take them over to his warehouse. And a neighbor, her name's Kristen, walked by while Scott was loading the umbrellas and said Scott was smiling and said good morning to her and seemed nothing out of the ordinary. And after this, Scott went back in the house and filled up a mop bucket for Lacey so that way she could mop the floor. At around 9.48 a.m., Scott said that he and Lacey were finishing watching basic morning TV, which included a Martha Stewart show. He said he remembered them discussing something about meringue and cookies. And Lacey was, like, all about Martha Stewart. It was one of her favorite shows. So, you know, something she liked to watch in the mornings. So then Scott said when he was leaving, Lacey was mopping the floor and he said he left somewhere between like 949, 950 to 1030-ish a.m. He's not quite sure, somewhere around there. But then he made the little bit less than 10-minute drive over to his warehouse, checking the voicemail on his cell phone at 1008. Scott parked at his office and entered through the pedestrian door. Now, I do want to mention something about this warehouse. Before I saw pictures, I thought when they said warehouse, it was going to be like a fucking warehouse, like huge. It's not. It's small. It's tiny. It's like a, it's actually like a really big storage unit. If you think about it like that, essentially, it looks like, I'm trying to think, it looks like someone is just renting a storage facility. Right. Like a whole big one. Yeah. It doesn't look like, Anything big, scary, sinister like my brain made it out to be. (laughs) (laughs) His warehouse. So then he was there for almost 30 minutes or 26 minutes to be exact. He was there from 1030 to 1056 and he checked his email and sent one to his boss who had left him the voicemail that he checked earlier in the morning. They also were able to see later on that he also looked up instructions for a woodworking tool called a 
Morticier? Morticer? I, I don't know how to say that. I don't know. I don't know. Not a woodworker. Some tool thing. Something he had to assemble, mm-hmm. basically, that just came in via UPS. There's approximately about 20 minutes from when he logged off the computer to when he left the warehouse. I'm going to go with the assumption that he was probably putting the thing together because that would make sense, you know? Because mm-hmm. on one of the sources, you can look at the like the machine thing. It's got a few pieces and, you know, you got to read, put it together, things like that. That makes sense to me. Also, he had to, like, hook up his boat. Yeah, and he said that, too. Like, he said he had to clean up the office and then he started putting the thing together. And then he um, unloaded some tools from, you know, his truck bed and stuff like that. And this is when he would cut his knuckle on the toolbox, which is something that he gets asked about later. And then when he opened the driver's side door to get a napkin, some of his blood dripped on it or he swiped his hand on it, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then another thing to kind of point out too, like obviously with loading up his boat, he wouldn't be able to fit his truck into the warehouse. Like he'd have to like pull it up and still be out like in the open. So like he would just be able to hitch it up and then have to like pull it out and then close and all of that. So, you know, that would take time too. Mm-hmm. So you might have caught earlier, he mentioned he was going to go golfing. He said that he thought it was too cold to golf. So then he decided instead to go over to Berkeley Marina to try out his new fishing boat. So he got his boat, went out the pedestrian door, and then got in his truck. And Scott left the warehouse at 1118. And this is when he drove to Berkeley. Roughly, it took him about an hour and a half Maybe a little longer because obviously when you're pulling something of heavy weight, you can't drive as fast. And then later they confirmed that with (laughs) – this is how dated it is (laughs) – Yahoo Maps that it took an hour and 36 minutes. And I'm assuming that's, you know, without pulling. Also, another thing, Scott purchased a boat launch ticket at 12.54 when he arrived at the marina. And, of course, when he got there, he launched his boat. He told the police that he motored north for probably about two miles, and that's where he was near like a little island that had a bunch of trash on it, and he saw a big sign that said no landing, and then there were some broken piers. He thought it'd be a good shallow area, I guess, and he had some new lures that he just got from Big Five, so he got them out and decided to troll for a bit before heading back to the marina because he wasn't really like planning on being out there very long. He was just kind of getting the boat wet. Which makes sense because I can honestly say like when my father-in-law bought his new boat, he's had it for several years, but he bought it in October, which is still, it's still kind of warm in California, but water in California gets really cold about September. Mm -hmm. And he made our entire family go out on the boat (laughs) in like in mid-October to try it out. And so like it's a ski, like wakeboarding boat. So we had to like partake in those events. <laughs> so I do understand the caught co- like people a lot will be like, oh, it's December. It's the bay. Like, how could you go out there? But if you had a proper coat, you'd be fine. Right. And then when Scott got back to the marina, he said he was talking to a couple guys about fishing and that there was a couple of maintenance guys who were laughing at him because he was having issues with backing down his trailer on the ramp to load everything. And then a detective later would confirm that, yes, people had seen him there and the guys did remember seeing somebody having trouble and them kind of like getting the kick out of it. 
So Scott guessed he was there for probably about an hour and a half. And when authorities would kind of double check things later, it was pretty close. Like with his cell phone pings and stuff, he was there about 78 minutes. And then from 2.12 to 3.25-ish, this was when he left the marina and called Lacey at home on her cell phone. Um, And he also called a friend named Greg Reed and then his parents, and he said that he got stuck in some traffic. There is a voicemail that he left, which is, I don't know, people are kind of like weirded out. His message said, hey, beautiful, I just left you a message at home. It's 2.15. I'm leaving Berkeley. I won't be able to go get Vela Farms to get the basket for Papa. I was hoping you'd get this message and go on out there. I'll see you in a bit, sweetie. Love you. Bye. You can find that message anywhere. I think some people were kind of like, why would he wait until then to be like, oh, I can't get the basket or whatever, even though he was in Modesto earlier in the morning and then knew it or why didn't he call her earlier in the day or whatever, or if she knew he was going fishing, like blah, blah, blah kind of thing. My thought is like maybe he didn't, maybe he thought like time management wise he would have been back in time. Right. I think he, from what I kind of gathered from that is that he thought he could go out to the marina and then on his way back, pick it up and then head back to the house. So he realized at that point in time that he had, because I mean, in the he even has stated in the past that he didn't think he was out on the water that long. Like he thought he was only going to be out like a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. He just really wanted to see what the boat could do because I think he was planning on taking a trip with Lacey's stepfather. Mm-hmm. And so I think he wanted to, you know, get in and like know what his boat could do. So he says he like looked down at his watch or whatever time telling device he had and realized he had been out longer than he the time had gotten away from him. And he had dinner that night. So I think it was you take that and then you take the fact that he had trouble a lot, like getting the boat up. It may have just been one of those like flustering moments where he was just trying to get through everything. And then by the time he called, like he realized he wasn't getting there, he had to call Lacey so that someone would go get it. Right. After this, he pulled over for gas at a Chevron in Livermore, and he would call Lacey again. I know where that Chevron is. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) It's right off First Street. Oh, God. Isn't that weird when stuff like that, you're just like, I know where that is. I know exactly where that is. But at this time, he doesn't leave her a message. And then from the Chevron back to the warehouse, it was about 48 minutes to drive. So he would get to the warehouse around 4.13. He said he unhooked the boat and said he just spent maybe five minutes in the office. This is when he saw a fax about like an incoming shipment. He said he remembers seeing that because he was disappointed about when it was arriving, basically. And then after that, he said he headed home. The incoming fax, the timestamp was 11.28 a.m. This came in after Scott left for the marina, so it very well could have been sitting there. You know, it was Christmas Eve, so it was his office. So, like, you know, nobody else was there kind of thing. They're like, it was sitting there. Right. Scott got home approximately between 4.30 and 4.45, and he would go through the side gate where he found their dog, Mackenzie. Something weird, the leash was still on and he was just like, okay, he took the leash off and he put it on the patio table. 
It'd come out later. It wouldn't be like right now. But apparently a neighbor, her name is Karen, saw Mackenzie in the street with the leash on and put him back in the Peterson's yard because, you know, she was familiar with them. So she knew that was their dog. So she was just trying to help out and she put the dog up and went on about her day. Right. Scott said that when he entered the house that the dog and cat's just ran in and so he emptied the mop bucket because, you know, he didn't want like any of the cats or anything to drink out of it. Um, and he poured the water on the front walkway and then placed the bucket and the mop there. And then he grabbed the mail too. So just, you know, basic, normal stuff. Normal time. Yeah. Yeah. And at this point, he noticed that Lacey's car was in the driveway, but she wasn't there. So he assumed that Sharon had just picked her up and that she was over there and they were getting ready for Christmas dinner. He said after this, he got undressed from fishing and he threw those straight in the washer. And he also grabbed the dirty rags from the housekeeper that that had been left from the day before. And then he, you know, started the washer up. And he said, you know, this was just kind of his habit since he worked with chemicals. And I know some people think that's weird that he would strip down like that. But I feel that's pretty normal because anytime my husband's like been working outside or done something like on the car or anything where it's like, you know, his clothes are really, really dirty. It's like take them off so you don't trudge stuff through the house and just throw them in by themselves so they could get clean, Mm -hmm. you know, without ruining anything else type of thing. Right. And you also have to look at like the fact that like Lacey was pregnant Mm -hmm. and pregnant women have like a higher sense of smell. And if he's working or around chemicals a lot, that could like the smell could cause her. So this could have just been a habit that he had. Right. Like he gets home, he takes off his clothes. Like I've I've had friends who when they're pregnant, they're like, you know, their husband's cologne, like like they had to throw it away. It was just it was gross like to them. So they loved it before they got pregnant. So this could be a thing like maybe his warehouse had a certain smell that put on his clothes, that kind of stuff. Totally justified. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, when people like I I heard that when people were saying how they thought it was weird, he must have like thrown or washed the bloody clothes. It's like people typically don't bring the bloody clothes home and then wash them. They typically throw them away. Right. So this I'm just kind of like, ill though. He said he took the pizza box out with the leftovers and then poured a glass of milk. Jessica, you know how I feel about milk. <laughs> I know you hate milk, but in my my husband's family, they drink milk religiously. And you also must think that her father is a dairy farmer and they probably have some very strong feelings about milk. Therefore, it's probably something that's enjoyed in their house a lot. But eat it with pizza. That's just weird. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that is something Thomas would totally do. What if they didn't have a like a drink he wanted or he knew he was going to be drinking alcohol later or he didn't want something sweet like soda and didn't necessarily want water? It is a lot of dairy to be consuming with pizza and have a glass of milk. But again, daughter of a dairy farmer may have just like instilled this into Scott. You got to drink more milk. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) So after the weird milk thing, after Milkgate, (laughs) (laughs) Milkgate, you're welcome, (laughs) he showered and he got dressed and then he went back into the kitchen and he checked the phone messages. After this, he heard the message that he left for Lacey and then listened to a message left by Ron, her stepdad. Ron asked if Scott or Lacey could bring whipped cream when they come. 
this kind of set off a light bulb in Scott's brain being like, well, why would he be asking about whipped cream if Lacey's over there? Or like, why would he be addressing both of us instead of just me? Right. So he decided to call over there to be like, okay, let me see. Let me call and see what's going on. And this was about at 517. And Scott asked if Lacey was there. Of course, she was not. So Scott told Sharon that her car was in the driveway, but she wasn't home. And then Sharon asked if Mackenzie was in the yard or not. And then that's when Scott remembered that the leash was on the dog. And he's like, oh, you know, things are starting to connect. At this point is when the search for Lacey would begin. Over the next half hour, Scott placed two more phone calls with Lacey's mom and Ron. And then Scott, it's said that he began checking with neighbors, calling neighbors, calling friends, and headed to the park with Mackenzie. Sharon told Scott that they would check the hospitals so he could check the park. And then Ron called 911 at 547 to report Lacey as missing. Something I want to say about Sharon. Yes, go ahead. Sharon later says in regards to Scott, she thought it was weird that he said, well, Lacey's missing, which I think is a weird thing to question, because how else do you say, well, Lacey's not here. Lacey's not with you. So Lacey's just not here. I feel like a lot of times and opinions will come out later, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people say like Scott Peterson didn't seem to have a sense of urgency to catch I don't know what my my phrase is going to be, but he didn't seem to have a sense of urgency at all. Yeah. But the fact that he said my wife is missing, that's a sense of urgency. That's saying like, I don't think she just went to the store, you know, like her car is here. This is before Uber. This is not like, you know, she's missing. Right. So I think it's weird that Sharon thinks it's weird that Scott said she's missing. I feel like that's an appropriate response. Right. Like, how else do you describe that? Like, well, the only place that logically she would either be is here or with you. Mm -hmm. What was he supposed to say? I misplaced Lacey. Like, I've misplaced her. She's not in our home. I don't know where she could be. Missing is the appropriate thing. And the other thing is she's also like eight months pregnant. Right. So missing is the appropriate word here. Like the appropriate verb is Lacey is missing. Right. I also feel like this is one of those things where it's like, okay, how else do you react? Like you go, you go and look Mm -hmm. because one, you don't, you call everyone first. I don't know. I just always thought it was a weird thing for Sharon to like question that she thought it was weird that he said missing. Okay, Sharon. Yeah. And he would go in and do an interview with the investigators and stuff. And another thing that, of course, you know, people kind of get hung up on, but I don't, is that originally he said he agreed to the polygraph test, but then, uh, you know, the next day or whatever, he decided against it. And I feel like, you know, it could have been one of those things where he initially was just like, yeah, I'll do anything, like whatever, whatever, whatever's mm. going to help. But then it's like you take a step back and you think about it. And that's not, whether you're guilty or not, that's not always the best idea to do one. Right. Well, Scott's dad later came out saying about that, actually. Mm -hmm. What Lee ended up saying is Scott told him, yeah, I agreed to do a polygraph test, which, by the way, hello, Modesto PD. This man's wife is missing and you're wasting your valuable time bringing him into a police station and videotaping it. What's his name? I wrote it out phonetically. It's like Al Brocchini. Thank you. This man irks me to the limit here. I'm sorry. I'm pretty sure he met Scott Peterson and went, this guy is a charming mofo. His wife is missing. 
there's something wrong. It's like the weird things that like he picks on, like he picks on the fact that, you know, Scott offered him a glass of water and then he set it on their table, their beautiful wood table, mind you. And Scott went and put a coaster under it. Because at this point in time, this man might be thinking his wife is missing. And I don't know about you, but I have interacted with several wives who like give a real rat's ass about their tables. I don't really care because I have an Ikea table. So I don't, you know. Yeah, I don't either. But yeah, it might just be ingrained. Yeah. Right. Like if you own a very expensive table, I am sure Lacey Peterson said to Scott Peterson several times, put a coaster under that. And it's probably just so like, oh, no, because like think about it. Like, I don't want her to come home and there'd be a ring on the table. Like Mm -hmm. she could be distressed. And what if this is I don't want to add to it. Like, right. And then. And then he also thinks it's weird that as he's going through their vehicles, like Detective Brohini is just being a dick and like the door of Scott's truck is like banging into her car or vice versa. I can't remember which one it is. They don't actually say. But Scott goes and gets a glove and puts it between the doors so it doesn't ding up their cars because he had like a GMC. It was like a really nice truck and she had a fucking Land Rover. Right. They had expensive cars. Right. So like, I'm sorry. Are you saying that like, He's not allowed to, like, you know, take care of his stuff. Also, I think this is a way of Scott controlling a situation he has no control over. People do these weird things when they can't, like, he can't control, he can't find his wife. Mm -hmm. So he puts a glove in the door so that when she gets back, her car isn't scraped up. But no, 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 like, he's a weird murderer person because he put a coaster under the table and a glove between a door and a car. Modesto PD, who the fuck trained you? (laughs) (laughs) someone had to say it sorry Uh, i mean people can probably already can tell what my thought is on this no you're okay so on the 26th stuff would go like swing into motion a volunteer center opened over at the red lion hotel people started getting thousands of flyers and all kinds of stuff like this just was like widespread immediately for lazy Mm -hmm. the community really really stepped up The investigators did a search on the 27th of Scott's warehouse, and they also went over to Berkeley Marina just to make sure that he was there and fishing on the day that Lacey disappeared. Also, I do want to say something. Some people say that it's odd that he went fishing on Christmas Eve or that he even did this. But in my mind, since it was morning and day and the fact that they didn't have any children born yet... I don't really see that as too odd because all of their plans were in the evening. So I I don't see that as weird. Right. And I think this is something that like characteristically they did. They were very independent people. They did things that they wanted to do. And I mean, if you really think about it, his wife is eight months pregnant. When is the really the next time he's going to get to go out on his boat once Connor was born? And he had made mention that he wanted to be able to surprise Ron. And my theory is that he was taking the boat out so that that night when he went out to when he goes over to their house, he could tell Ron about his boat. Yeah. Which, by the way, a lot of the theories that people come up with, they're not like far fetched. They're very logical that Mm -hmm. like it doesn't take that much of an intuitive leap to be like, oh, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But I do want to say. As the early days of this investigation does start happening, Mm -hmm. we have a huge bomb drop about Scott. This is something that comes into play 
during the trials and everything, but it is a huge part in this story. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm going to hand it over to Jessica for a bit to tell us a little bit about Amber Fry. So Amber Fry, what do I say about America's favorite mistress? Um, <laughs> I mean, seriously. Amber Fry was born on February 10th, 1975 to Ron and Brenda Fry in Los Angeles County. She moves up to Fresno like before high school because she graduates from Clovis High School, which is a suburb of Fresno. Just fun fact. Mm hmm. She studies child development at Fresno City College and works at a child care center for a while. She meets, and Amber Fry apparently has a type. <laughs> so Amber meets this guy named Josh who was married, but was like, I guess, separated because Josh's wife was pregnant. Amber like actually gives them a baby shower and visits the baby at the hospital. But Josh and Michelle actually end up reconciling. Amber basically accuses Josh of grabbing her face and files the police report five days later. There's all these things. Josh says that Amber made a false report against him and out of retaliation for leaving her. So it's this kind of weird thing that goes off and on. But she meets a new guy and she gets pregnant. She also um, goes to massage therapy school and graduates and begins working as a massage therapist. Mm -hmm. Now, in 2002, on about October 24th, Amber's friend Sean meets Scott at a convention. I'm assuming something to do with his work. In Anaheim. So they they meet. She suggests that Scott call her friend Amber, who's interested in a serious relationship. Yes. Scott actually tries to get with Sean first. Mm. And they kind of like flirt and get kind of cross the line, but don't like do anything, quote, quote. And people that were there were like, oh, this is awkward. But then I guess maybe Sean had some guilt because that's when she's kind of like, oh, Amber here. Right. <laughs> So Sean emails Scott asking why he hasn't called Amber. They kind of go back and forth on that for a couple weeks. And then on November 19th, Scott and Amber speak for the first time on the phone. Scott meets Amber for the first time on the 20th at the Elephant Bar restaurant in Fresno. I have some strong feelings about that choice of restaurant since they changed their freaking Salad, it is no longer a good restaurant. I'm just saying. You can <laughs> at me all you freaking want. They stay at the restaurant till closing, and then they go hang out at a bar, and they return to Scott's hotel, which essentially he was like, okay, I want to go up and like shower, and then we can go back down to the like the bar downstairs, which was really just a ploy to get Amber up into his room, and they ended up spending the night together. Yeah, and I even read something, that shower thing actually even happened before dinner, and that he had a bottle of champagne and everything waiting, and I'm like, okay. No one is that stupid. She knew what was happening. <laughs> yeah, right. Which, by the way, like, if you're looking for a serious relationship, the guy that shows up in a hotel convinces you to come up to his hotel room with champagne and chocolate-covered strawberries. He ain't looking for something too far from your crotchal region. Just saying. On December 2nd, Scott unexpectedly shows up at Amber's house, and they pick up her daughter from daycare, and they pack a picnic, and they go 
they go on a little hike and Amber's so smitten with him because her daughter is just like, oh my goodness, he's so great. And she's like 18 months old or something like that. Yeah, she's a baby. Yeah, she's like holding his hand because like she's 18 months old. She probably needed stability here. Let's be real. Mm -hmm. And then he spends the night at her house. Who knows what he told Lacey. This is the other weird thing is like the next day, Amber asked Scott to pick up her daughter from daycare. What the fuck? You haven't even. Yeah. Ah, What? You've at this point spent like maybe at this point in time, maybe 24 hours with the dude. Right. Like what the fuck is wrong with you? Right. On December 6th, Sean finds out that Scott is married and tells him that if he doesn't tell Amber, she's going to. So Scott immediately like is like, no, I'm not married. What are you talking about? And then hangs up and then calls her back like an hour later and is like, um, so I was married, but I lost my wife. So Sean says, look, you need to come clean with Amber because she needs to know this. Mm-hmm. So then on December 9th, Scott tells Amber that he was married, but he lost his wife. OK, girlfriend, Amber Fry, America's favorite mistress. Listen to me. Are you telling me that this man that you've known all of 24 hours bears his soul to you? You've let him pick up your kid. You obviously aren't great at making life choices because look at your dating history. You dated a married man who reconciled. You didn't date very long. You dated a guy who like essentially was like, oh, we're dating. I'm going to take some risque photos of you. They're not ever going to go anywhere. That'll backfire on you later. Mm -hmm. So she's just like caught up in this. She forgives him for telling this lie because, you know, married men who are having an affair, you know, they generally tell the truth. They generally tell their mistress, you're the mistress. Also, while we're here, I have a theory about why he told her he lost Lacey. Please do, because this bugs the shit out of me. Tell me. (laughs) (laughs) I put a lot of thought into this and I bounced off Thomas and he's like, okay. Mm. Um, So this is what he tells her. He says to her, I've lost my wife. This is the first holiday without my wife. And that's super skis. Like, let's be real here. Like, that's the that you are scumbag. Mm-hmm. Like, no, but like nobody out here saying Scott Peterson is husband of the year. Like, no one's saying that. Hell no. No. He's a trash person. <laughs> right. <laughs> However, this is the perfect excuse to ditch Amber later because he can come back and say to her, I'm not ready for a commitment. I lost my wife. I'm not ready. And then ghost her because there was a time bomb. There was a ticking time bomb of Connor Peterson of when that relationship was going to have to end. Mm -hmm. Because I have a feeling that Lacey was going to put a lot of kibosh on any of his like extra traveling. Mm -hmm. Like if it wasn't 100% necessary, I guarantee you Scott was going to be like back of that house as much as possible. There was a time period in which this relationship was. It was she was eight months pregnant, almost eight and a half months pregnant. So really, this relationship could only go on for a couple months. Mind you, this is only like this is like the third time they've hung out in person. Right. They only met like four times. There's only one other occasion that the two of them get together, really. Right. Right. I mean, it's for a few days. It's a few days later. 
Amber asks him to come to this holiday party that Sean and her husband Tom, or not husband, fiance Tom, are throwing, right? (laughs) Which it's like, Sean shouldn't fucking throw stones then because if she's all up on Scott Peterson inappropriately. So there's like a holiday party that Amber goes to. They get dressed up. It's a very famous photo. Scott's wearing a Santa hat in a tuxedo. Amber's in this like prom dress from 1997. It's not really. It's like from 2001. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, You know, like there's this sense of it. And like during this time, this is where those famous photos get taken that end up coming out later in his demise of this. Mm -hmm. And this is the last time they see each other. Right. This is literally the last time they see each other until like Amber Fry is in court. And that's two years later. So I want to really look at the fact that the prosecution leader is going to paint this as this like hugely romantic relationship. And granted, they talked a lot on the phone. Yeah, they, they talked every day on the phone. Yeah. I don't know if texting is a thing, but like, who knows? <laughs> it was 2002. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, but it was like T9 stuff. So like. For those of you who are too young to know, that's where you had to push the key three times to get, you know, the letter like L. <laughs> and fuck if you needed the letter Z. Yeah. Because I was like four. Yeah, you're like. (laughs) Right. So Amber has now made her way into Scott's timeline. She's kind of part of this. And then Lacey goes missing on December 24th. Amber really, it doesn't do much. She does her own thing. Yeah, she was someone who didn't really like watch the news or keep up with that. And social media really wasn't a thing. So fair enough. Right. So on the 26th, so two days after Lacey's disappearance, Amber calls Scott 14 times. I'm not sure if they talked 14 times, but Amber calls him 14 times. I'm pretty sure this is about the time that he tells her he's going out of the country. Yeah. Yeah. He's supposed to be going to Europe or something like that. Right. Which makes sense because he's going to be able to be available via phone, but he's not going to be able to make any impromptu trips down to Fresno. Which is only like, it's like an hour away. It's not that far. Mm-hmm. Like maybe an hour, two hours. To, I don't I don't know. I'm very bad at geography of California. We've discussed this at length, guys. I literally tried to drive to Fresno once thinking it was going to take two hours. And my friend Rob Shapiro can vouch for this, that it took like three hours <laughs> and a half. It was horrifying. But. She's supposed to go to Hawaii, but ends up not going to Hawaii. She stays home. Throughout this whole time, she's been talking to her friend named Richard Bird, who apparently is a cop. On December 30th, Richard calls Amber Fry at 1.40 in the morning, which, goddamn, to tell her that her boyfriend, Scott Peterson, is not only married, but is a person of interest. Oh, oh, I I remember. Mm-hmm. I remember why that even came up. So do you remember or do you want me to tell you? You can tell me. So she started getting sketched out by Scott. Mm. So she was like, can you look into him for me to see if, if he's married mm-hmm. or what's the deal? Like what's going on and let me know. That's when he was like, bitch. Right. Which I think is interesting because he calls and tells her that Scott Peterson is married, but is also a person of interest in the disappearance of Amber Fry. Of Lacey. Sorry, not Amber Fry. She's still very much around. Of disappearance of Lacey Peterson, which I think is interesting because he, this means that he's been a person of, in- of interest quite a long time. Yeah. This is only six days after she's missed, gone missing. Right. Really only like five and a half because if it's at 1.40 in the morning, it just turned the 30th. 
So literally, he calls her at 1.40 in the morning. According to Amber Fry, she sat around and cried a whole bunch of times, like, wah, and freaked out. But she actually calls the Modesto Police Department at 1.43 a.m. So you didn't cry that long. Yeah, you cried for three minutes. And let's say, like, let's say that it took your conversation with Richard lasted a minute. So really, you cried for about a minute and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Let's be real, Amber. So she calls and tells the Modesto police that she's in a relationship with Scott Peterson. She speaks to them for 22 minutes. And then basically, what's his face? Detective Brocchini and his associate, John Bueller, drive to Fresno and they talk to her. And at this point, they convince her to tap her phone. They go to Radio Shack and they buy like a little thing they can plug in. And wouldn't you know what happened the second... They get this all set up at Amber's house. Scott calls. Yes. So she's talking to Scott. He's saying that he's on his way to Paris or something like that, or is going to be in Paris. And the connection's bad and it gets lost. The next day on December 31st, Amber and Scott talk again. He calls her to wish her a happy new year because obviously if he's in Paris, he has already had in his new year. But Scott wasn't in Paris. Scott was at the vigil in the park for Lacey. Yeah. Which, now I'm going to say my thing I said earlier to you in private, but now I'm going to say it to everyone. Go ahead. Okay. Mm. Jillian Flynn, coming for you. Because, bitch, you literally wrote Gone Girl after this story. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, the more I researched this, I was like, no, shut the front door. <laughs> this is legitimately Gone Girl. Like, I'm reading the book again. Like, up until the end where the crazy wife, like, you know, assaults herself with wine bottles. Like, this is pretty much the same. Like, he's got a girlfriend. There's a candlelit vigil. He doesn't want to be in the press. He's looks super shady. Jesus Christ. Like, Scott Peterson, if you're out there, read Gone Girl. Because, dude, that dude was innocent. <laughs> Just as plausible. actually. I'm pretty sure your story is a lot more plausible than their story. Just saying. (laughs) Appeals team, go forth. Okay. Anyway, in this time in the timeline, like, they're doing all of these different investigations. They're, like, questioning people. They're going back out to the park. They are starting to look at the marina, which instantly, in my opinion, is, like, guilty. Yeah. Let's just mention... The media frenzy, they are publishing every fucking single detail. Right. So I have often said in my private life that Scott Peterson was tried in the court of public opinion way before he was tried in the court system. Thank you, Nancy Grace. But it is kind of recorded. They talk about this in some of the documentaries. In fact, they talk about this in like several documentaries they watched about this case, that during the holiday season, it's really slow for hard-hitting news. It's more like fluff pieces about reindeers and Santas and Goodwill, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So there's a missing pregnant woman in Modesto, a reporter from the Bay Area. This is an important detail. Comes to Modesto at like 5 a.m. and starts reporting about this missing woman in the Bay Area. Remember that when we start talking about the trial. Yeah. It's important. So they start reporting like immediately and coverage blows up. Mm-hmm. So 
I mean, it's both good and bad because they're getting this good coverage so that if Lacey's out there, there's more of a chance that someone could spot her and see her face. Mm -hmm. It's bad because they're starting a narrative already. Yeah. Of this untrustworthy husband because Scott isn't acting like the distraught, concerned husband. He is keeping it cool, which he does talk about later in, like, in conversations that are recorded via the prison with his dad. And like other people, when they ask him, like, why didn't you show any emotion? He's like, I'm trying to stay strong because my wife is missing and I can't fall apart. Mm -hmm. Which, okay. So obviously Tara and I are very into true crime and stuff of that nature because, you know, we have podcasts about it. But (laughs) (laughs) in all of my research, I have very rarely come across police that ask for an alibi confirmation in the way that the Modesto police did. So how generally people would ask is they would call people that Scott would say, which they did. I mean, Tara mentioned that earlier. They they went and talked to the people at the marina. Those individuals confirmed. Mm -hmm. But this wasn't good enough for the Modesto police. In fact, what they decided to do was go on the air and ask, hey, everyone out there in TV land... And watching this news press conference, if on the 24th of December, you saw Scott Peterson's silver GMC, I think it was GMC or was a Dodge, I can't remember. Truck. <laughs> it was his truck. <laughs> yeah. His truck. Attached to this boat at any point between Modesto and the Berkeley Marina and back, please call in and let us know. We're trying to confirm his alibi. Which basically means that in the court of public opinion, they're letting everyone know without letting everyone know that he is a person of interest or at least a very strong suspect. Yeah. When they question the police officer, like the communications officer, like, well, does this mean Scott is a suspect? They're like, well, he hasn't been cleared yet. So they're telling the world, we think it's the husband. So what then? What happens then? People... People love drama. Mm-hmm. This is why true crime is such a huge thing. People love the drama of true crime. So they're like, of course he's guilty. Yeah. So this is the first damning press conference that really hurt Scott. Plus the fact that he's not in any of uh, any other press conference ever. Mm-hmm. It's always just his family, like his mom talking, or it's uh, Sharon. And I mean, because like, her like her father Lacey's father like breaks down in the super emotional like please bring back our daughter please mm-hmm. you know it's it's quite emotional and so then they kind of play off like here's the dad of the missing girl like breaking down but there's Scott just stoically standing off to the side yeah and everyone's different like everyone handles situations weird and this may be his only way of not like you know mm-hmm. falling down that that is the first damning now on January 23rd, the, the police department, um, the Modesto Police Department, get word that the National Enquirer has received copies of the photos of Scott and Amber at her holiday party. Mm-hmm. So they do what they think is best, which is contact Sharon and Ron, and they bring them down to the station and they show this picture. 
Now, according to Detective Broccolini, no, his name is Brocchini. I'm just being funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Detective Brocchini, Sharon buries her face in her hands and starts crying and is upset and just mutters, why did he have to kill her? Because up to this point, mind you, they have been defending him. Like, Scott would never do this. They're very happy. They're very in love. So it's really hard for me to believe that all of a sudden they see this picture. She breaks down and is like, he did it. I feel like there were some words between there. Yeah. But this definitely prompted the Modesto Police Department to have to get out ahead of this because they knew it was going to launch. So what they did is because they knew it was going to launch like the 25th or something like that. Right. So they got a hold of Amber Fry and they told her, you need to come down here to Modesto and you need to hold a press conference, which she did. They told the media that they were going to have this big part of this case. This big key to solving this case was coming. This is what they promised all of these reporters. And one reporter said she was standing there and she was waiting and they open the door and this petite little blonde girl with a ponytail walks out and ev- and walks straight up to the podium and everybody is like, who's this? What's she doing here? And Amber Fry, like shaking, they, every reporter said she was shaking. You can see it in there. She's shaking. Her voice is shaky. Yeah. She says that she's Amber Fry and that she has had a, a romantic relationship with Scott Peterson, that they have been dating, you know, and she's really sorry for the pain this has caused the family. And she hopes for the safe return of Lacey. End conference, walks out. Everyone in the world is like, like if Scott Peterson was standing in the room, which he wasn't, every head would have swiveled slowly and been like, duh, fuck. (laughs) But this is the moment that was, if you already thought Scott Peterson was hinky, this is the moment that put the nail in that coffin and you will forever be like, that dude is a Mm dirtbag. By the way, Scott Peterson might be a dirtbag because he cheated on his pregnant wife. I'm going to say it, but I'm going to let you all judge. So we're going to stop this part one and you guys are going to have to wait for part two. It's going to be worth it though. So come back in two weeks. Yes, yes. So next Monday, we will have our regular listeners episode that we have every last Monday. But then the following week, it will be back to true crime and it'll be part two. We will pick up after the press conference, go through some more findings, his arrest, the trials, and a bunch more crazy, crazy things. Be prepared for some opinions. Yes. Thank you guys for listening. We appreciate you. We love you so much. We hope you guys have a fantastic week. We will catch you on Thursday for a stabby and uh, we'll talk to you then. Bye, guys. Bye.